Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. And I'm joined today by another 20-plus year internet security veteran, uh, Stuart McClure, who's the CEO and founder of Silance. And uh, we're going to have a conversation today about artificial intelligence, threat detection, and uh, we'll bounce around to uh, all sorts of uh, cybersecurity, internet security, and uh, other related topics. Uh, If you're going to be able to stick with us uh, here on the air, uh, you can listen on your AM radio. You can also listen via iHeart streaming uh, on the 1200 WAI channel. Um, and if you're not going to be able to stay with us, this will go up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com on Tuesday, September 17th. And it'll also go up uh, on all the podcasting services out across the Internet. If you have a favorite podcasting service where you do not see CyberTalk Radio, uh, let us know on Facebook or Twitter. We will fix that and we will get you a CyberTalk Radio t-shirt. So, Stuart, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Brett. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me out. Yeah. So uh, with uh, the Cyber Patriot kids and those kind of folks out in our listening audience, I always uh, like to kind of open up with just uh, how did you find your way into um, computer security? What what got you there to begin with? And then journey from your beginning through to successful CEO. Gosh. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Is, we, we've got uh, we've got an hour here, so you don't have to be in that big of a hurry. I've got I've got some time to kill. Okay. Well, so I really started my cybersecurity um, sort of I guess passion at the same time I started my IT and technology computer passion really, and that was in way way old days uh mid 80s really in high school so i hadn't really couldn't afford a computer could only really go to school and sort of get access to computers i took a computer class which seems crazy they had it back then but i think it was like 86 it was on my junior senior year i took a computer class and i thought it was incredible i could actually control this computer just by writing words in a computer screen and and have it do whatever i want to do so to me that was my first passion around computers and technology. But then about a year, year and a half into my college university up in University of Colorado Boulder, I was uh, actually helping out a computer science class uh, as a TA. And uh, I was running a lab, helping to support the lab and the students in the, in the lab. And I came across um, an attack that was successful at the university called the Morris Worm. Yeah. And you you probably remember that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. The very first worm of the internet, period. And it was incredibly efficient and effective at bringing down services on the internet. And the interesting thing is it wasn't even designed to bring stuff down. Robert released it with the payload was basically just spread itself. So it wasn't do any harm on purpose to the computers. He just wanted to see what would happen if it would spread. Yeah. And it spread and it spread so fast that it created a the probably the first denial of service attack let's call it and not on purpose yeah Yeah, the first denial of service worm out there unintended of course and for the most part i mean while he did use some i guess you'd call it zero days today but for the most part it used just standard features the capabilities that were inside of the products that were just never designed to think about it securely it was designed to just be you know feature rich and functional and so Robert took advantage of that and, and had fun. And, and so, you know, it impacted the university, obviously. I had come across the remnants of it as, as a you know, chief for this class. And I was just fascinated with the ability of this code to take down computers and computer networks. And so I just got instantly obsessed with it. And then shortly after, I had a, uh, another TA... Uh, in the, in a similar class, um, come to me, and I was running a, a Sun OS box at the time. Mostly, I was an admin for that, and yeah. which was now Solaris, etc. 
you know, Unix. And then uh, he was running some really ancient, now ancient uh, version of SGI, Irix, and uh, another form of Unix. And yeah. and he's and he was talking about the Morse worm and the code. And he's like, oh, yeah, because it, it hit your box and not mine because, you know, SunOS is so insecure and it's so easy to, you know, hack. And yeah. and I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So I go, oh, okay, so it, it's, it's super hard to, to hack Irix then. And he goes, yeah. And I go... All right, so is that a challenge? Yeah. Like, are you authorizing me to hack your computer if I can? He says, yeah, absolutely. So the first capture the flag, or <laughs> the at least one capture, of them. <laughs> it was my first ever capture the flag. And I, uh, so I went home, and, and of course, you know, the one thing you just don't want to tell me is you can't do it. That, yeah. That's just, if you want me to just go away and not do anything, just ignore me, you know, it's fine. And so I just got obsessed. So I, I didn't sleep for two or three nights. And I came back, and I had written his root password on a piece of paper and folded it. And I said, uh, yeah, here, I, I got something for you. Took, he took the piece of paper, he opened it up, and that kid almost fainted. Like, the oh, blood just came right yeah. out of his face. And, and, I, and I realized at that point, man, like that, and it was, even though it was a lot of work, it was relatively easy intellectually for me to actually discover his root password. And uh, it just floored him, and he just was yeah. blown away. So, I, you know, I was able to show him that, no, he really, you know, Irix is not as secure as he thinks it is. No, and I mean, back those days, I mean, we were telnetting across networks. Um, and oh, so yeah. anyone sitting on the network with you uh, could listen to what was going on. Telnet was not encrypting anything. No. No, no, not even so, trying. Not yeah, not even trying <laughs> at all. So it's it's interesting as people talk about like the I guess um, from an outsider perspective, it feels like there's more security problems now and more flaws now. And as an industry, we're doing really good to improve security all the time. It's just now that there's more dollars on the internet, there's more motivated attackers, and so we see more of these data breaches and we see more of these hacking attacks, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I couldn't imagine plugging my college computer lab into the internet today. I mean, we had the same IRIX boxes. We had the HP bug of the week that would come out on all mm -hmm. our HP UX stuff. Right. Somebody would put one out at uh, Friday afternoon at 4 o'clock. So it got to the point where we were just shutting all the HP boxes down Friday at 3 um, until the bug came out and we could figure out what to do it. Because if not, then the rest of the kids on the college campus would go have fun because all of our campus computing um, stuff ran on HP UX. Well, especially in the university environment, I mean, it's yeah. like the wild, wild west out there because their whole theory is you want to keep it open and available and accessible. And well, to do that, you have to shut down a lot of security uh, or, you know, yeah. capabilities. Uh, so it doesn't, you know, it leaves a lot of room for the bad guys to take it full advantage and exploit the features and bugs that are already in the software that's running. So, yeah, it's it is a challenge in the university setting. There's just no doubt about it. Yeah. So from there into the professional world. So at, at that point in time, it's not like now where there's 100,000 cybersecurity jobs just posted. Was, I know. Like no one had a job posted for that no back one. then. No one. And I and honestly, I would have loved to have had a cybersecurity job coming out of college, but they just didn't exist. The best thing I could do was go into IT, technology, networking. So I was exposed, obviously, to a lot of different operating systems, and I was an admin on many, many uh, types of them. And so I always had to think about security on those operating systems yeah. and, and being an admin and responsible for tons of users. I had to think about it. But I also got exposed on the network side as well to uh, the Livingston router. And that to me was the very first, my really first firewall, so to speak. It was just a packet filtering firewall uh, or router that uh, I turned into a firewall. And so I was able to control it in, in some of the first um, installations on the internet of, uh, I used to work for the city of 
Palm Desert, which is out in Palm Springs in the city of Encinitas. And I also started my very first company actually right after college. And uh, that, was, um, that was a great experience because I could do anything I wanted and help solve a lot of problems, which I'd love to do. And, uh, but I always had to sort of sell on IT versus security because it really, had, no one had a real driver passion for it. It was just an, an annoyance or a nuisance that you had to think about security. Yeah. They just wanted to get up and running and an app working and, you know, something printing or something. Of yeah, that and this nature. is is back where a lot of people used to leave their car doors unlocked and they would leave <laughs> the keys tucked to a Velcro strap that's or right. something underneath the uh, the sun visor. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So they've, you're, they're doing that with their car and their physical security and then you're coming trying to tell them to keep the computer safe and they're like, I'm not doing that, Stuart. Yeah. E- exactly. Yeah. So, so uh, as you were there with the the router, I find it interesting that you talk about it as a firewall. For, so for listeners out there, I think the only difference fundamentally I see between a router and a firewall is a router by default on their basic configuration forwards all the traffic and a firewall by default blocks everything. So um, technically after that, there's not really any difference between the two pieces of equipment at just the network level. Well, ex- except when you have an admin that puts a rule at the bottom of your firewall that says any any, 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 right? Yeah, well, it turns it into a router. <laughs> it yeah. turns it into basically uh, just a brick that allows all traffic to go through. Yeah, that's always the fun one. We used to do audits of firewalls, and I can't, I, you know, you, you know this drill, but yeah. I don't know, maybe one out of 10 would have a stupid any, any, any follow, you know, final rule that if it didn't catch, if it didn't get blocked from all the prior rules, yeah. it would just be allowed. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. So, so you're you're uh, working on this, and you, so you're kind of creating your own security jobs at this point. And I guess you've done that for most of the the twenty years of your career. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or twenty mean, plus years. I started that company out in Palm Springs. Uh, well, really started in Boulder. I uh, worked with a, a small uh, computer consultancy there, and um, it was sort of an easy math equation. I, I was doing all the work and getting paid eight dollars an hour and charging three hundred. And yeah, you don't have to be a mathematician yeah you did not have to like, you did not have to, have to major in mathematics <laughs> to figure out that, exactly. that there's uh you can charge 150 uh, exactly. and, and make a lot of money yourself exactly. yeah and, and of course all the expertise was in, in me so I, at any rate um yeah i just left and started my own gig and, and did that for a couple years two three years actually and uh decided to uh, i wanted to leave the area of palm springs you know three summers in palm springs is probably like what six here in San Antonio or something? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, everyone was... jokes about how hot it is in Texas, but I, I grew up all over the West Coast, and I mean today as we're uh, recording this, I mean I have friends in Livermore. I think it's 107 in Livermore today. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I mean a, a standard August in, in Palm Springs is 120. Easy. Yeah. You know, like you just you rush from car to building yeah. to car every single minute of the day because you just cannot stand the heat. No. It's just you'll you'll. Just die. Yeah, yeah. They, when they go, it's a, it's a dry heat. I go, no, it's a slow cooking. Because like at that point, it when you're above ninety eight point six, you're just slowly cooking outside. It's rotisserie. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So uh, for uh, one of the, as well as because uh, you founded a number of companies now. So, but each time you, you kind of go make that that leap, um, it's got to be nerve wracking. It's easier to collect a paycheck from somebody else. Yeah, there is a lot of benefit to collecting a paycheck from somebody else for sure in terms of simplicity lack of you know low anxiety at least um you know predictability of yeah it. but i have i have this you know i guess crazy masochistic side of me right and uh 
So I, I really do enjoy being in control of, of my destiny. Yeah. And even though there is a lot of anxiety and, and challenges that come from starting a company and starting it from, from scratch is, you know, incredibly time consuming. It's, it's not really hard work. It's just a lot of work. Yeah. So you have to just be willing to work 24 seven and, and not be too worried about waking up in the middle of the night and, you know, in a panic cause you didn't do a, B and C and, it's it's less um, comforting, that's for sure, but it's far more rewarding in my book. And uh, I always recommend to folks, if if you're ever interested in starting a company, really, the formula is easy. I mean, today you can start it overnight, I mean, within minutes, but it, it really is about um, finding a big problem that you like to solve. And yeah. if, if you can find that, that problem or problems that you really enjoy going after and trying to solve the rest of it just works out. It's just mechanical of building the company and establishing it and formalizing it, getting employees and such like that. But yeah. it's solving that big, big problem or small problems too. Uh, yeah. Those are all valid. Yeah. So, I mean, when you, you go back and as I think about silence, your, your most recent company, uh, when you started it and you said, we're going to use AI to solve cybersecurity challenges, um, I think everyone said, I don't know anyone wants to really buy cybersecurity and computer security stuff. I mean, it's hard to sell that. You've proven you can sell it some, but AI is not, never going to work. So this is, I guess, one of the reasons why you have to go start your own thing. You had conviction that it that it could work and you could apply AI to cybersecurity then. And it, um, I think most folks have not. Uh, they were You were a decade ahead probably of where most folks are starting to try to get to. Yeah, well, I, I, the idea, the original idea really came from the fact that I, I'd be on the road a ton. You know, I was at a, uh, a big antivirus company at the time. Yeah. And, and well, actually, the idea really came even before that. When I had my prior company, Foundstone, started that in 1999, sold it to McAfee in 2004. And at that time, I would always get the same question every single time I went out there and spoke to an audience. And yeah. I also had the Hacking Exposed book stuff, so everybody asked me to go hack yeah. You know, like dance monkey, you know, dance kind of thing with the hacking. So I would go do that because it's fun and I'd show them and they'd all get freaked out and, and they'd tell me like, okay, I'm like freaking out, Stu, like you can hack my iPhone or my iPad or my Mac or my yeah. Windows box, whatever. But they would always ask me the same question, which is, okay, so what do you run on your computer to protect yourself? Yeah. You must be a big target. Yeah. Hackers must want to go get you. Yeah. And, and I'm like, yeah, I see it all the time. And and I'll be honest, I don't use anything. Yeah, I mean, you run I, the same thing I do, which is your own brain. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just you use your brain. Yeah, I mean, sure, okay, maybe we do a firewall just to like get the low hanging fruit out of the yeah, way. Yeah, but yeah, Windows firewalls turned on on my computer, like the Windows Defender exactly. stuff to stop things exactly. from writing. But like, I don't have a piece of third party software installed. One hundred percent. So I, you know, I would just tell people, and they'd be floored, they'd be blown away, like what? Yeah. Especially as I got, you know, higher up in the ranks of this major antivirus company. Yeah. Uh, I'm supposed to be up there selling our, our software and our solutions, but they don't work. Yeah. So, so I can't be that disingenuous. So I, I constantly had to just tell people, yeah. I mean, I feel AV works like a security camera. It can let you see what's happened when the attacker breaks in and does stuff, but it doesn't do anything to stop the attacker from getting in the door in the first place. Same thing with security cameras. Exactly. It, yeah. If it knows what it's looking for, then it can, it can at least detect it. Yeah. But it's way too late. Um, it's like having an ADT system out there, you know, or something, some sort of home security system. It's just detect and respond. It's yeah. not a preventative capability. And so the prevention's in your brain. And, yeah. and if you just, you know, take certain steps and don't do certain things, you're going to prevent 99% of all the attacks out there. So I would 
tell everybody this and and of course everybody would be like wow what does that mean i don't know i'm not used to you know you know and i'm like it's not it's not hard yeah it's like three or four rules you just follow these rules so i would go through all this and i would do this year after year after year and eventually i i kept coming to the fact that gosh there had to be a programmatic because i you know computer science background programming background that i had i'm like gosh there has to be a programmatic way of taking the decision making that you and i have when it comes to using computers and actually learn what is the most successful means by which you prevent an attack and then put it into a piece of technology. And that was really the machine learning model. Now, back, because I'm, you know, my programming skills today can put in a, a thimble, as they say. But back in the day, you know, I, I actually thought about a lot of the stuff and in particular did a lot of programming around decision tree learning. Yeah. Now, this is the, probably the most fundamental foundational form of, of machine learning and, and artificial intelligence that's out there. And so I knew that it was possible. I just didn't know what sort of programming techniques or algorithms or machine learning mathematics that we would use. And so that I gave to my uh, co-founder, Ryan Perma, and the team to figure out. I said, look, this is how I prevent all these attacks, how you prevent all these attacks. So, so let's teach a computer to do the same thing and to do it on steroids uh instead of you know 20 features or 50 features that you're looking for of bad let's put it to a million features yeah and that was really once we started to get um sort of some groundswell success around okay well we can get a thousand features and then we can get ten thousand and a hundred thousand once we got to about a hundred thousand features quote unquote or characteristics of what was bad then we started with well what are the characteristics of good and once we were able to sort of define those two and get the proper labels on the data and able to feed it into a learning algorithm, it was it was instantaneously successful. And, and we saw it instantly with, I, mean, I remember when I was at my prior antivirus company, I actually had a team of about 1,200 signature writers. So these are, yeah. these are, you know, hardworking folks that come in every single day that this new attack bypassed this antivirus. And so now we're gonna write a new signature or a new heuristic or generic, so 1,200 people. Yeah. And I had achieved success and found this mathematical uh, path forward with seven data scientists. And I'm like, this is it, man, this is the future. I mean, there's just, you're, you're, you're gonna have to leverage machine learning, predictive learning to prevent and to actually solve anything in cybersecurity going forward. And so that, that's I, I really believe the, the future of our industry is just a, really adopting, embracing mathematics and machine learning to be able to predict the, the unknown unknown attacks. Because it's, it's fine to, let's say, prevent a known attack, um, but in, gosh, unknown attacks of which there are probably about a half a million that come out every single day, there's no way that you can keep up with it with a traditional signature-based approach. No. So math and, and prediction was really the only only way forward. And, and I, I went to the board of many of the, you know, of the folks that I was with beforehand trying to explain this, like, hey, guys, yeah. you know, th- th- this is dead. This is, uh, how we're doing it is completely horrifically dead, and we have to come up with something new. And I just I couldn't convince anybody. So I'm just like, fine. Just gonna go do it myself. Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting one, and uh, I I think one of the personal security things I do, and listeners out here, this is something you can do for for free. So, uh, your email, um, when you use a web browser to log into your email, uh, pick a web browser that you use just for that. Install multiple web browsers in your computer; they're all free. So I read my email in one web browser. I browse the web in a different web browser. And by the way, I use a third web browser to log into my online banking. So like 
with pick Chrome, Brave, Internet Explorer, Firefox, inst uh, install them all, Safari, install them all on your computer. And then by just separating those web browsers out, no one can, if I'm a malicious ad in an ad network or something, it, it's going to see other public web pages because I browse the, the web in one browser. And if I've got something in my uh, email, it's separated. There can't be a cross-tab browser attack because it's not even running under the same process. So it's little things like that that are in my brain and that I know from just separating security roles and duties. And, and you can do that stuff too and just think in those sorts of ways where you um, try to be a little bit cautious on where and how you share things and you can keep yourself pretty safe on the internet. Yeah, my first recommendation is is nobody likes it when it comes to browsing and using browsers for security, but is to turn off JavaScript. If you just turn off JavaScript, you're probably killing 90% yeah. of all the attacks oh, for that are sure. out there, right? Now, it's a pain in the butt because every legitimate website that you want to see the pretty pictures and dancing kitties, then fine, you, you got to just approve it. But you do, it takes two seconds, and then you approve it for that website. And, of course, it doesn't prevent 100%, but you can do further steps that can prevent it. Yeah, if, yeah, if you're going to websites where you aren't 100% confident the security turning off um, yeah, JavaScript is the best security thing you can do because yeah. it, it, the, at that point, um, I'm not aware of any uh, attacks where people have been able to um, deliver a payload through HTML and CSS. Um, maybe there's one out there, uh, but I'm not aware of one. So if you turn off JavaScript, all of those browser-based attacks basically go away. Yeah, I mean, there's some cross-site scripting stuff, that, but you know, it's 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 not as damaging as as the active script stuff because they can yeah they can tell the browser to do almost anything at that point, uh, steal your credentials and your cache and your passwords and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah, that that's an easy one. I mean, the, the other one is you know just don't click on anything that you aren't positively sure of where it's going to go. You know, I mean, you get an email from a friend that says click here, and just don't blindly click and yeah. look at it and see, hey, is this really CNN.com or is it something else? Is it legitimate? And and you could probably kill 90% of all the sort of the email-born stuff, uh, link email-born stuff. Yeah. Um, and then on the attachment, same thing. It's like, just look at it. Yeah. And Save it first, look at it. And that's what I, that's all I would do and, and, and take a peek at it before you open it up or execute it, things like that. Yeah, yeah so. you're going to save yourself a lot of pain and suffering. And you don't for have sure. to have, you know, 20 different products and layers of technology. But for those that don't want to bother with it and have to deal with it, fine. Yeah. Just look for solutions that employ true machine learning and AI to predict and prevent the unknown unknowns. And then you're, you're, in, you're in really good hands there. You'll get to the 99th percentile for sure. You're listening to 1200 WAI, and this is Cyber Talk Radio. And I've been joined this week by Stuart McClure, and we've been discussing kind of his background and history. If uh, you uh, just hopped in your car now, uh, you can catch the uh, rebroadcast of this uh, up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com on Tuesday, September 17th. It'll go up with uh, all of our past episodes. Uh, we've been uh, on the air now for about three years here and had guests on from the public sector, private sector. Uh, we've had students on who are cyber patriot uh, kids uh, that have uh, learned uh, cybersecurity back in the, the school uh, days uh, where, man, we did not have, that was not an option for us when we were kids to. No, you had to be inventive. Man. Yeah. yeah. You had to hack on your own. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, we barely had yeah, computers and they certainly weren't networked to anything, at least when I was yeah, yeah. in school until I got to college. That was the first time anything was plugged into the network. That's right. Same here. So you, you just gave a, a commencement speech recently at UC Irvine. Yeah, well, so what was the yeah. kind of the overall message in that one here as we head into our break for news, traffic, and weather update? Well, 
it was about yeah eight nine hundred folks uh, um, students and I was really honored actually when they offered it up to me I, I thought gosh I I don't know why you're asking me because I'm not worthy but I'll do it I'm happy to do it and yeah. excited and so I really went back I think and and created um, and brought forth this theme that you know look you don't have to you know, cure cancer. You don't have to solve the world's wars. You know, like, just find one problem that you want to solve and then put everything into it that you possibly can. Your, your, you know, your energy, your emotion, your dedication, and go go solve that problem. And uh, it'll, it'll set you on a path that will make you feel incredibly uh, satisfied, rewarded, and, you know, gracious and very thankful. And, um... And, and the more that those students can do that and just then never give up at it, um, they'll be successful. It's, it's a really simple formula. You know, find a problem, never give up solving it. Yeah. And, and you will be at a minimum, even if you don't solve the problem, you'll be happy and thrilled every day trying to solve the problem. Absolutely. So uh, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break uh, for a news, traffic, and weather update. We will be right back. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20 year internet security veteran. I guess it, really the internet's only been around for roughly that long. I mean, I, it was sort of there before then, but it was only on the college campuses. Pretty much, yeah. Either military or college, yeah. uh, university. And uh, so I'm, I'm joined this week by Stuart McClure, the CEO and founder of Silence, and uh, we've been uh, talking about his background and uh, all sorts of interesting things. So you can. Uh, catch it uh, on your favorite podcasting service or, or our website. It'll go up on Tuesday, September 17th, uh, along with all of our other past episodes. Uh, so this half of the program, we're going to uh, dive into some uh, artificial intelligence discussion, uh, talk about uh, open disclosure, uh, and also probably hit on, as with related to that open disclosure, some stuff about zero days and good idea, bad idea to keep them and, and those sorts of things. If, so uh, stick with us here. If you're in your car right now listening and you plan on hopping out of your car, uh, you can stream via iHeart Streaming on your Android iOS device or uh, in your web browser at www.iheartradio.com, but you will need to turn JavaScript on for that to work in your web browser. Uh, for those that were with us in the first half of the program, uh, you'll know what that little joke was about. So, uh, Stuart, uh, on... AI. So I'll just I want to go back to just definitions. I know this is a, somewhat a, a, like a, for the last decade, everyone's been asking, what is the cloud? Uh, but artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, like, do those mean three different things to you? Does that just mean one thing? Like, how do you think about these all these words that get thrown around about making computers think? Well, yeah, I mean, you ask 10 people the, that question, you'll get, you know, 11 answers, right? And, or maybe 20. So, yeah, yeah look, you know, academically, you can make all kinds of distinctions between all three of those things, uh, deep learning, machine learning, AI, countless others. But at the end of the day, it's just teaching a computer to get smarter and smarter about the data that you're feeding it. And, and that's it. Um, and, and how that computer then performs the action or the function afterwards is maybe more aligned with the definition. But ultimately, for, for me, it's giving the computer enough data 
that's accurate um, and, and properly labeled and curated. Yeah, that it can learn data from. scientists get to learn. They get to be data janitors before you get to do science. Yeah, yeah look, the, the hardest part actually, you know, it's it's a common myth that the hardest part is these learning algorithms and just figuring out how to, you know, how to how to build an array of, of you know, yeah, whatnot neural net to get the data up in there and, and have it processed. That's not it. It's the step one, which is okay, collect and curate the data because. Yeah it's garbage in garbage out if, if you don't have clean pristine labeled data of one thing it's going to learn the garbage that's going into it and then the the second hardest part of this built you know applying machine learning is well then having a programmer a proper programmer <laughs> take all of this data information decision making and put it into a real commercializable product um, yeah and, you know data scientists are incredibly valuable in you know efficient algorithmic uh, learning and training of data and that's what they do amazingly well but they don't curate the data they don't collect the data and they certainly most of them don't program to productize the decisions that come from the data the learn decisions that come from the data so it really is about first step find the place to go get the data collect it and curate it and make sure it's accurate sure then put it into a nice pretty you know machine learning algorithm uh, that'll tell you the distinction between one class to another class to another class. And then really, m most importantly, is find somebody that can actually productize that and uh, start to make money on it or yeah. do do good by it. So and as you're, you're working um, with AI, so I'll, I'll reference Hollywood here for a minute. So we, we've seen uh, artificial intelligent robots in movies like Ex Machina or The, the Terminator or whatever else. Yeah, great, uh, great movies. Yeah, how, <laughs> how far are we from general AI or even like Rosie the Robot and the Jetsons? Like how far are we where the, the AI can actually think across a broad range of problems and not just be trained on one specific problem? Yeah, you know, the the general AI or AGI, as it's often referred to, is really what all those Hollywood movies are made of, pretty much 99% of them all, like, because they're, they're fearful that we're going to teach a computer to be more human than us or more, you know, perfectly human than yes. us. And when that happens, of course, why do they need humans? They'll just replicate themselves yeah. and take over the world. And uh, certainly, you know, there's, you have to think about this problem because it is a potential problem. But I do think it is a potential, not a probable problem. And I know um, there's a lot smarter people out there in the world that have um, do not agree with me on this. Uh, <laughs> smarter than me, yeah, don't agree with me. But here's my here's my main premise as to why I don't believe it's probable: is that we train computers the way we learn. I mean, ultimately, at the end yeah. of the day, we're limited by, you know, a computer's limited to learn with what, how we teach it. Yeah? Yeah. And my, in my life's experience, you know, if I go to 10 people out on the street down here in San Antonio and I ask for help, at least half of them are going to help me, right? Yes. Maybe, maybe more, okay? Because we're in San Antonio. It, Good is a people. it is a friendly city. Friendly city. Well, what that means is that at our heart as human beings, we do like to help people. We want to do the right thing and, and be good people and, and citizens and help others, not hurt them. So what that means is the, the learning that we're going to infuse into the computers, it's going to be predominantly a helpful learning subsystem, which tells me that the need for uh, or the ability for a learned system 
to be predominantly bad versus predominantly good is improbable. And so my, my argument is, hey, look, we built this stuff. Humans are mostly good. And so because of that, computers will be mostly good. And sure, you'll have problems and issues, and, and you probably will have AI to AI battles and wars in the future. Um, and we start to see a little bit of that. That's why we, we focus on a lot of adversarial AI, as they call yeah. it, or offensive AI. But uh, I think it is far in the future, and, and I believe it's far more hyped than real. Yeah, I mean, my, my thing is I uh, want to let listeners know. So you think about the human brain, and, and we feel like computers are way smarter than people already because, like, Excel can do math faster than I can do math, and computers can do certain specific tasks easier and better than you can. But the human brain has way more uh, computational capabilities than the fastest computer processors out there still. Um, it takes a, a – if you think about all the things your brain is doing all the time, all of the – vision that's coming in it's super high resolution graphics coming in via your eyes your brain is processing that all of the um your nerve endings on your skin all feeling the chair beneath you all of the stuff in your balance all of these things that your brain is doing all the time uh to set you you up and to run your body uh, a lot of computational power so to get a, a robot uh where you've got a general ai that's able to do all these things we're a long way away i mean i joke right now if, if you were to build the terminator you just have to run away for three minutes till his battery runs out <laughs> like if you had enough cpus in the terminator to make the terminator today you right. pack the rest of his body full of batteries yeah yeah i mean it's going to run out of batteries pretty quick <laughs> um so yeah, I mean, we've, we've, I feel like we've got a long ways to go uh, there until it's effective. And so this uh, brings me into one of the ones about cybersecurity. I've uh, had a, a lot of conversations. So good guys have to buy computers in order to train their, their machine learning systems. Right. Bad guys don't have to buy computers. Like, they can hack into well, your computer, my computer, hopefully not, but 10 million computers out there. You look at the size of the Mirai botnet or some of these botnets sure. that have been exposed and like people aren't using these bots anymore to send spam email in a lot of cases. They're not using these botnets to do denial of service attacks now because they're using the GPUs inside the graphics cards and all those computers likely to be training a machine learning system to do bad things. Yep, absolutely. So how do – I mean, as I think about this, so if you're out there, please um, uh, patch, update your computer. Um, if it's running warm all the time and you're not doing anything on it um, – get it looked at so that you're not helping some bad actor train a, an AI system. Um, but and if your power bill's gone up at your business and you're not sure why your power bill is up, it might be because someone's hacked into your computers and they're using all your graphics cards to train things. Yeah, it's more likely to mine Bitcoin or something. Yeah, or yes. even mine Bitcoin yeah. as well. That's happening <laughs> a ton of, on currency, the botnets yeah. as well. Yeah, and it can happen in a browser with JavaScript, by the way. Yes, yeah. it can, yeah. Yeah, the coin mining uh, malware yeah. inside the browsers, it's a fun one. Yeah, so if you... And that'll happen on your mobile phone as well. If you're out there and you're, you're all of a sudden your mobile device is starting to get warm in your hand and you've got a bunch of tabs open in your mobile browser, chances are one of those tabs may be mining Bitcoin on your phone right now. Yeah, if your battery's getting super drained super fast, you're just noticing it runs out of juice a lot earlier day after day. Yeah, it's it can uh, it can cause problems for you. Yeah. So, I mean, as I think, like, if you've got a, a botnet that's, whatever, 10 million computers, it's a billion dollars of CapEx. There's not a lot of good guys out there spending a billion dollars of CapEx to train an, no. an AI model yeah. in a machine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, thoughts on, on just like, well, sort yeah, of this asymmetric issue we have here? <laughs> a little bit, but but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, sure, are bad guys going to exploit vulnerabilities and take advantage of those um, uh, targets to just use their cpu and their memory and to process stuff absolutely um 
I don't know, you probably remember the distributed.net uh, program that was back in the 90s when to, to crack encryption keys, yeah. uh, they would distribute the, um, basically the, the, you know, the brute forcing. You use back orifice to run Jack the Ripper on yeah. someone else's computer. That's Woo-hoo! exactly it. Yeah. Right? And, and yeah, sure, you're going to see some of that. But I mean, at the end of the day, um, nation states can, you know, they can use a lot of, buy a lot of compute, but you can also have yeah. Amazon now. You just, you buy the flexible compute, you can do almost, spin up almost in, almost in, Definitely, yeah, okay. especially if you're using somebody else's credit card. This is back to the bad guys precisely, again. Precisely, yeah. yeah, precisely, yeah. I mean, just just don't be dumb and just do the basic stuff. You know, go patch your router and co- constantly and make sure you're up to date on patches. And then don't, like we said, those three or four things. You know, just have a, you know some complex passwords that aren't replicated. That's all. Yeah. And and then you know turn off JavaScript. Yeah. Pa- in your there's browser. plenty of free password managers out there that store your passwords locally on a device. Um, password managers storing stuff in the cloud. Um, have a security expert look at that before you trust that because you might just be giving all your passwords to a bad actor. Then, uh, so be thoughtful about where and what type of cloud service you're storing your passwords in if you're going to use that. But, yeah, and then there are browser ones like Google has yeah. theirs and IE has theirs or Edge now um, yeah. for sure. But yeah, like if you have JavaScript turned on, well, one of the things it can do is that can read the bloody passwords in those things. So you don't want that. No. So at any rate, I, I think, sure, nascent states are going to go after it. They're going to, you know, spin up as much computer as they want. They'll probably even do bad, uh, you know, hack into a bunch of stuff and go after it. But you know, the processing power of those things, like with the Mirai botnet, I mean, it was, uh, you know, what, a million, 10 million different, like, video cameras and yeah. things like this. Yeah, that so one was not... You, you don't have a lot uh, of compute CPU power there. Compute no. power there. Um, but, yeah, you you get into one of these big, you know, car burps or, you know, these big botnet stuff, and, yeah, it's you could do anything you want. And and they'll, they'll start to turn their attention to things that make them money. Um, you're not going to put that much effort into, you know, owning a botnet unless you're going to make some money out of it. So I don't, I, I think it's more for the cyber criminals to take advantage of than, than sort of a nation state. Per yeah. Se. The nation states will just, they'll, they'll spend billions of dollars on yeah. building out their own data centers. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they, they need, you need to be able to obviously proxy your connection. So it anonymizes it. No one can tell who you are and, you know, make sure it's highly available. And, you know, you can't just hope and pray when you're doing a, a major offensive exercise. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, an interesting one. So as we, we go through, so there's um, open disclosure out there. So there's like Google's project zero, and there's a bunch of different open disclosure groups that are finding things that have not been released and, and getting that information out there to kind of level the playing field on um, the vulnerability disclosure. So what are your kind of thoughts on, do you disclose to the vendor, wait around for 90 days? Do you just, as soon as you discover something that's severe, do you give the information to the world so that everyone has a chance to react to it equally? Yeah, I know. It's so funny. I was actually getting ready this morning to come on in here and I was thinking about this topic and I'm like, you know, when somebody comes out today with a vulnerability and who has not informed uh, the manufacturer, whoever that might be, whether it be Microsoft operating system or, you know, any cybersecurity company out there that has a product that has some sort of vulnerability on it. You know, when when they do that, uh, it's sort of like, you know, the 90s are calling and, you know, you just need to wear the outfit, you know, because honestly, before, sure, before 1997, that's all you could do. I mean, nobody really cared. No manufacturer, software manufacturer, hardware, anybody cared about cybersecurity. There was no shame in it. There's no 
problems with it. So so you had to. You almost had to sort of like shame them and yeah. expose it. But we've come a long way, man. I mean, it's like 20-something years now since we've had that sort of spirit in, in the air. And, and now there's very structured, very accountable uh, ways of disclosing to the vendor uh, so you can get it, get it fixed. Because otherwise what happens is, I mean, the only one that wins is the ego of the discloser. Yeah. It it, it, it really doesn't, um, especially with a cybersecurity. If you've got a vulnerability in a cybersecurity company uh, product, man, they, they will move mountains, trust me, <laughs> to yes. get this thing fixed and get a patch out before. And it doesn't take like months anymore or years. Remember in the old oh. days, gosh. It would be yeah. years and years and years. I mean, I, I got to tell you, so one of the very first vulnerabilities I ever discovered was in Microsoft Windows. <clears throat> and back then, this was before they had what's called an MSRC, Microsoft Res uh, Resource Center, right? Yeah. So that the yeah, there was no Windows Center. update. No, there was no Windows updates. Yeah. Yeah. Like there was nothing. And, and they didn't have anybody to respond to these cybersecurity incidents. Okay, fine. Fine. Then just, you know. Make sure you tell everybody what are the mitigating controls to prevent this vulnerability. Yeah. But there's no patch from the, the operating system. Better. Yeah. There'll be a, a dot release that'll come on some floppy disks eventually <laughs> in the future that <laughs> fixes this. 20 uh, disks that yes. you have to install. But, it, you know, at the end of the day, today, now, I mean, come on. Every, just about every company has a cybersecurity product process, you know, and resolution process. So there is no excuse today to release something without at least giving the vendor a week or two uh, yeah. of, of heads up. The only reason you would do that is to build your own ego. I mean, that that's just it. And today I would say probably 99% of the people that see those kind of events really do look down on the researcher and the individuals because you can tell they're motivated simply uh, selfishly. Uh, they're really driven by whatever selfish ego that they have or drive that they have. It's not about uh, helping people. This is a front, and it's just a BS. Yeah. It really is about you know self-serving efforts for them. They're not trying to help anybody. So now look, if you've given it to a vendor and they have not responded. Yeah, well, or they tell you, this is not a flaw in our product. Right, it's a feature. Yeah. It's not a bug. It's a yeah. feature. It's in our manual. I can't tell you how many times I've called vendors and they've told me that, right? Yeah. Sure, okay, fine. Then, hey, you know, as soon as you have a, a proper mitigation, responsible control against it or something, great. Go, go out and share with the world so they can be protected. But don't pretend that it's to protect the world when it, it's not. It's actually creating a less... A secure world by by doing this. Yeah. Um, so we'll we'll dive a little deeper into the ethical dilemmas around vulnerability disclosure here for a second. So let's say medical device. It's a an insulin pump that's implanted or a pacemaker yep. that happens to have a Bluetooth interface on it, so you can talk to your pacemaker with your cell phone. Yep. Um, let's say that Bluetooth has got a vulnerability flaw, and now these devices are implanted in a bunch of people, and the medical device manufacturer didn't make it so they could update the firmware on this thing. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty much, you're Most referring, you, you might be referring to all the hacks that I've done in my past, but yes, I've done hacks on all that stuff, right? So in, in 2012, I did uh, an insulin pump hack at, on a keynote stage at RSA, and it was me and a buddy, uh, may, may rest in peace, Barnaby Jack, uh, and, and a small team uh, at McAfee that discovered this vulnerability. And we, and we uh, disclosed it to the vendor, um, long before the talk, yeah. um, they called it a feature. We called it a, a problem. Yeah. And, and so we wanted to demonstrate to the world, uh, you know, how this, how easy this would be to work. 
we didn't name the manufacturer. We didn't shame them. We didn't talk about, you know, how horrible they are and everything else. We simply said, look, gang, everybody's developing these technologies without security in mind. As a result, there will, there will be major cybersecurity vulnerabilities in them that bad guys can take advantage of. And you need to think about it and you need to call your manufacturers and, and encourage them to not think of these problems as features, but as security bugs. Yeah. Um, and, and so for sure, I mean, we've, we, I've demonstrated, gosh, countless uh, attacks like this, um, where you can just take over a biomed pump and, and fusion pump and insulin pump. Yeah. For those that are not aware, an, an insulin overdose is pretty fatal. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and so for yeah for those that know like insulin related to folks with diabetes, whether type one or type two, and you you may have a pump there, and if you can't regulate and control that, if the bad guy can regulate and control that the wrong direction, it's pretty fatal. Yeah, it's as bad as the pacemaker. It is, and and I you know apparently it just didn't seem to really motivate the manufacturer, and uh, so we we talked about that, and yeah. uh, and then like uh, two years later, I so saw in it that on a situation, TV show like did or... you disclose to the FDA or who whoever oh, yeah, regulates? Course. Do they yeah. r- issue a recall notice? I feel mean, like on cars or whatnot, I feel like we issue recalls. You go back in, you get the brakes fixed or whatever's broken on an automobile. Yeah. But on medical devices, it doesn't feel like a recall process exists. No, there isn't one. Okay, and there certainly so wasn't I'm not one missing back it. then. No, yeah, yeah. no. Uh, sure, we actually disclosed FDA. We actually did a live demonstration. Me and Barnaby uh, did a live one um, on WebEx to show them how easy it was and what we did, what we were able to achieve. Yeah. And of course, a lot of like you could hear a lot of sighs in the background, like, oh, God, you know, because th- they felt as frustrated as we did. Because yeah. it, it, it has nothing more. And look, the manufacturers that have these problems and, and yes, they're ultimately responsible, but they're not malicious. They don't no. do this on purpose. So it's simply lack of education. They don't know how to architect and design these products in a secure form and fashion. So that's fine. It's no big deal. You know, you just need to A, repair it, fix it as fast as possible based on yeah. the knowledge that we have today. But then B, let's look at all your future products and let's start thinking in a secure way right from the beginning, like at the back of the napkin time. Like, let's just get cybersecurity in there. Like, oh, well, how could a hacker get in here if, if we design it this way? Um, and just think intelligently about it, and then you could you could save yourself a lot of pain and suffering. So as, as a move, I guess, from uh, the medical devices to uh, industrial control systems. So, like, we've seen some hacks in the Ukraine. They've had power outages over there related to uh, uh, their systems being compromised. Uh and uh, we've, I've heard from some different working groups, uh, folks are thinking about going back to um, dumb control systems. So they're going to go back to analog control systems for industrial versus computerized. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's, you think a legitimate route to just make devices dumb again will make just turn Bluetooth. Like, uh, my insulin pump's going to go back to not being connected to anything. No network protocols on it. Or my, my utility grid, I'm going to turn off all of my monitoring and go back to analog switches and, and analog dials. Well, there's certainly a, an argument to, to uh, go forward on that. I, I do think that's security through obscurity a bit, uh, but, uh, and I don't know how long you can really hold on to that. It's sort of like when people used to ask, well, how do I make my uh, computer secure? I say, well, hit the power button. I mean, yeah. That's the, <laughs> it's simple. It's safe. <laughs> yeah. But then, but then like Intel's AMT and V pro chipset um, yeah. had a, had a vulnerability in it where, the, the, that technology, you can actually um, mount, turn on and mount the computer from the network all remote, and there was a vulnerability in it, so it was unauthenticated. So I could actually 
turn on the bloody yeah, it turned was, off it, computer. It and, was actually and, unplug the power cord. It wasn't just yeah. turn the hit the power button. Well, yeah, and, yeah, and like you know, turn off the the Wi-Fi or whatever you you could to make sure that there was no vector in. Yeah, it was crazy. So you know, I don't think that's really the answer. However, I think for those that um, do have a hard time understanding cybersecurity and 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 mitigating those problems. It's probably a good good way to go. I mean, the the only I mean, the number one, the biggest worry I have is the uh, electrical grid. Yeah. I mean, I, I I know how incredibly insecure it is, and I just I, you know, if if one thing's going to send me up to the mountains, uh, you know, and live off the grid, it's going to be that. Yeah. And, and so it, you know, you just have to you have to be, I think, prepared for a potential outage of a long period of time. And uh, as long as you're prepared in that way, I think, you know, it, we can all survive. But it's it's not um, it, it's not for the faint of heart. You, you do need to think about it. And I think if the power companies are considering going back to analog and more simple, less connected systems, I think it's fine. Yeah. So we're uh, going to wrap up here shortly uh so it's been a pleasure having you uh, on the program and uh thanks for coming out while you were uh, visiting here in san antonio thanks Brett. yeah it's been a lot of fun yeah so i, I guess we'll we'll wrap with with one last kind of question about the zero day vulnerabilities so um nations have them the nation state security teams have them different security research teams have them and they they're working through disclosure processes or maybe they aren't disclosing them uh, because they were paid by a client to not share them yet uh is this making us more safe or less safe? Like if, if I'm a, a nation state and I just disclosed all these zero days I have to all the vendors and patches all the equipment, overall, like it weakens my offensive arsenal, but does it make me as a, a country better? With that one, we will wrap up Cyber Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in and listening on 1200 WAI.